Well, welcome to episode two of the Diabetes Vault. I hope you're well and you're looking after yourself. Um, Matt and I last week presented the very first episode, the intro episode. We hope you enjoyed that if you caught it. If you didn't, please go back because this is a three-part series, really. And the very first topic that we're talking about is insulin sensitivity or insulin resistance. And Matt has picked out a number of uh, research papers that we're going to talk about. Matt's going to give us the um, the medical side, and I'm going to try to give us the um, the diabetes, living with diabetes, kind of at the cold face side. So this week, we're going to look at episode two. So Matt, if it's okay, could you possibly introduce it? Yeah, sure. So um, this second paper, it looked at, it's, it's titled Body Mass Index, so BMI, which I'm sure most people have, have heard of, um, a good kind of proxy measure of establishing um, overweight and obesity, um, and, and also something called estimated glucose disposal rate, which is quite a big mouthy term, um, but that, it's essentially a, a proxy for insulin resistance. So we looked at overweight and obesity and also insulin resistance um, and how those two factors related to the risk of developing diabetes complications in people with type one diabetes. So that's, this is going to be the, the, uh, the focus of um, today's podcast. Um, I guess it would probably be a good place to kind of talk a little bit about insulin resistance, Andrew. Do you think that's wise? And just kind of explain that as a, as a kind of basic concept. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess if we take one step back and if we think about insulin, um, you know, obviously a lot of our listeners will have diabetes. A lot of them will have type one diabetes that will be administering insulin. Um, but what actually is insulin? Well, it's a really potent hormone that uh, under normal circumstances, our, our body makes. Um, so our, our pancreas is responsible for, for manufacturing insulin. In type two diabetes, the body becomes less responsive to the effects of insulin. And in type one diabetes, our body stops producing insulin. So hence why we need to be able to replace that. And insulin is really important for being able to regulate blood glucose concentrations or, or blood sugar levels. And I really just want to kind of drill down on two main points when, when we're thinking about the role of insulin and also how important it is within the, within the picture of insulin resistance. Insulin facilitates two things. So it enables the body certain tissues within the body to extract glucose from the circulation. And it also suppresses the release of stored glucose back into the circulation. So it has a net overall effect of lowering blood sugar levels. So if you administer insulin, then it lowers insulin, uh, it lowers glucose levels. If you have insulin resistance, well, it's a defect in the, in the actual action of insulin. So the body becomes less responsive to the effects uh, or the actions of insulin. So this means that the body is less effective at being able to extract glucose from, um, from circulating blood. And it's also less effective at being able to suppress the release of stored glucose from certain tissues. So that's a kind of whistle-stop tour of insulin and also insulin resistance. Is there anything in that, Andrew, which is worth recapping or recovering before we go yeah, I think I think there's one thing is when you do hear about insulin resistance in the community and on social, um, quite often people get confused about the fact that they think it's the amount of insulin you're taking. And they say, well, if I'm if I'm taking less insulin, I'm less resistant to insulin. 
if I'm taking less, therefore I'm, I'm more sensitive to insulin. But that's mm. not necessarily true, is it? Not necessarily. Um, I mean, as a in principle, yes, but actually when you drill down, not really. It is a bit of a misconception. I mean, there's a number of there's a number of factors that influence the amount of insulin uh, or, or uh, the amount of insulin requirements beyond just simply having underlying insulin resistance. So, for example, um, personal factors such as um, age, ethnicity, genetic makeup, that will vary from person to person. That will influence the, the, the individual in, insulin requirements. And actually, that's why you know, an individual's insulin requirements will differ from person to person, even if, in theory, they have the same underlying level of insulin sensitivity or insulin resistance. There's also other external factors, things like temperature, um, which can actually influence insulin sensitivity, but it can also increase things like kind of circulatory responses. So it, it changes things like blood flow. Um, I mean, things like exercise, which also influences insulin sensitivity and insulin resistance, um, it can affect blood, blood sugar levels and insulin requirements directly, but also indirectly, again, through kind of um, changing blood flow. And also it's influenced by nutritional factors. So the amount of carbohydrate that you eat, um, or also the amount of fat, the amount of protein, the amount of fiber, it's a very complex picture, picture nutritionally, and all of these factors interact. And it's not necessarily underlying insulin resistance, but there's, there's a whole host of different factors which, which can actually interplay. Okay, okay, that makes sense. So on this, on this research that, that, that you were running, it looks at BMI, it looks at insulin resistance, and it looks at your, um, the complications. So it associates all three of those things? Yeah, so what, 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 we, what we generally did, well, I mean, this is, actually, this is actually picked from a clinical observation. And I think that's a really important point. If any of the listeners are particularly interested in, you know, how do we come up with these kind of research papers? Where do the ideas come from? Most of, my, most of our research is actually informed by the people that we see in a routine clinic. Um, and actually, you know, if anyone has a particular question or wants to kind of, you know, write in, then, you know, I'd really encourage them to do so because all of that kind of information helps us think about what questions are really pertinent, not just to clinicians, but also to people living with diabetes. One of the really clear observations that we've noticed over the last few years in clinic is that people who tend to be overweight or obese so carrying a little bit more weight than probably what they should be and a little bit more weight than what would kind of be deemed healthy, they tend to develop complications quicker and they tend to develop at a much more, um, so they, they tend to develop much quicker and also they tend to be a lot more serious as well. So that's just a kind of a broad clinical observation. It, that doesn't necessarily explain why that is the case. So this is what the second research paper was really trying to shed a little bit of light on. You know, why is it that some people who do present with um, overweight or obesity tend to develop complications? Are they actually at a higher risk of complications? And if so, why might that actually be? Okay. And therefore, what can you do about it? The fact that insulin resistance is a, a, the integral part of this? Absolutely. So... What, in this particular paper, what we actually did was we, we took a, a relatively uh, large sample of people with type 1 diabetes. So we've got um, a really intensive research center um, in Leeds. And we sampled 
the people that we typically see in routine clinic and we use their clinical data. So a whole host of different measures, one of which being BMI, again, is a kind of proxy of, you know, whether you've got normal weight, whether you're overweight or obese. From a relatively large cohort, those who were overweight tend to develop complications Two types of complications, one microvascular complications, so complications that affect the small blood vessels, so things like eyes and also um, peripheral neuropathy, so um, the feet, and also big, big uh, blood vessels as well, so complications that affect the heart. And what we were able to see was those who had uh, an increase in weight were more likely to develop complications and they were more likely to be more severe. We also measured insulin resistance. And we'll talk a little bit about how that can be measured and how we measured it within the study. But what we actually showed was that insulin resistance was actually a better predictor of complications than simply using BMI. So it's not simply just overweight, it's actually underlying insulin resistance, which might be the driving force of complications. And of course, insulin resistance is often coupled with increases in weight. Um, Overweight and obesity can actually lead uh, and develop uh, insulin resistance so i think is a is a key mechanism underpinning some of the some of the findings that we actually saw it would seem to be that it's it's insulin resistance which might actually be a key driver in these diabetes complications can i ask you how many how many patients you said it was quite a large cohort i know last week we spoke about 20 patients um, with um, with the um, and looking at their weights and calorie consumption. Yeah, that's right. So last week we looked at a relatively tightly controlled laboratory based study. So they did a whole host of measures in a very controlled environment, and that was just on a very small sample of about 20, 20, uh, 20 people or so. In this particular study, uh, we just used routine clinical data. So it meant that we were actually able to capture data from a lot, a lot more people. And it was just over 2,000. And importantly, it's not just the number of people that we actually sampled, but it's also how representative that is mm-hmm. to the general population of people with type 1 diabetes. So, for example, we had a really um, inclusive age range. You know, we didn't discriminate between you know, sex or ethnicity. It's not necessarily representative to a global population because obviously you can't control for you know various different factors. Um, but as a, as a kind of representative sample, it, it's it's pretty close. Which is, I mean, two thousand is a significant number of type one, you know, type ones, isn't it? And that's it's, that's really interesting to look at that. So, look, we rarely like to talk about complications. People with diabetes, we, I think, we just try and avoid it at all costs. We don't like to think about it. We, I certainly don't like to think about it or talk about it. Um, we're we're certainly aware because it's it's sort of kind of ingrained from when you you're first diagnosed, but. So the complications you were looking at in particular here were neuropathy, retinopathy, and which is microvascular and and basically cardiovascular problems, which is um, and heart attacks and things like that. And that's macrovascular. Is that the way you were kind of explaining it? That's right. Yeah. So we kind of split the complications into two main categories, microvascular. So complications that affect small blood vessels macrovascular complications that affect the large blood vessels. And the reason why it's really important for those two to separate out is that generally we tend to see changes in microvascular complications before we see macrovascular complications. They tend to precede 
um, the kind of the big the uh, big blood vessel complications, and that's that's particularly important because, for example, even though we might have been able to detect um, you know certain markers being you know good sensitive predictors of things like heart attack, heart attacks, or, or overall cardiovascular disease. What's really important is being able to detect small blood vessel complications, because if we can act a lot earlier, then obviously we've got a much better chance of being able to to reverse some of those complications and to prevent them from becoming very, very serious. So that's why it's really important to separate those complications out. Okay, so can you remind us what the purpose of this this kind of research project was and this research study was? Because obviously we've been talking about insulin resistance, BMI and complications. I'm not entirely clear on what the purpose was. And then ideally, if you can tell us what, what the results that you found were. Yeah. So if you kind of rewind, um, it's really based on some of our clinical observations that we see. We see that people who tend to be overweight or, or, or obese um, tend to develop complications quicker and they also tend to be more serious. The first thing was really to say, well, is there any evidence around this? And this is what this study does. It provides empirical evidence that demonstrates that those who are overweight or obese tend to have a a increased risk of developing diabetes complications. That's the first thing. The second thing is that it doesn't really explain why that might be. And from some of our um, laboratory studies and some of our animal studies, which we've run, we think that insulin resistance plays a key role in that. Generally, as you put on more weight, you tend to become more insulin resistant. So your body is less effective at removing glucose from the circulation, and it's also less effective at suppressing glucose release uh, into the circulation. Now, obviously, the net effect of insulin resistance is an increase in blood glucose concentrations or an increase in blood sugar levels. And one of the main things around this study was that we actually controlled for that. So we showed that even if you control for blood glucose concentrations between different people, the relationship between insulin resistance and complications, it still remains. And that's really, really pivotal because it means that although concentrating on blood glucose levels is really, really important, and we know that that is linked to the risk of complications, and that's what everyone gets told about, and I, you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily deviate away from that. What we were able to show is that insulin resistance is also really, really important. In fact, it actually underpins a lot of the mechanisms which drive those changes in blood glucose levels. So rather than just simply focusing on blood glucose and that kind of glucose-centric approach, which we often have in, in clinic, and you'll often kind of, I'm sure you hear about on the kind of different chat rooms and different forums, it doesn't necessarily treat the underlying cause, which is, in our view, insulin resistance is the primary cause of complications and also you know other elements of self-management which people find really really difficult so in this study we were able to show that insulin resistance is a key driver of complications not just macro macrovascular complications but also microvascular complications the other thing which we were able to demonstrate is that we really were able to show the utility of a relative relatively unique tool which can be adopted in clinical practice and this is this estimated glucose disposal rate which i mentioned very briefly at the start it's a bit of a lengthy a lengthy term but essentially it's a proxy for insulin resistance 
It's basically a calculation adding up a number of different kind of clinical risk factors, which are routinely taken as part of clinical practice. And interestingly, because they're routinely taken part of, because they're taken as part of uh, routine clinical practice, it means that the next time you go into clinic, you should actually be able to ask for, you know, your actual insulin resistance status, because, you know, these metrics are actually being taken. Because historically, insulin resistance has been very, very difficult to measure. It typically involves quite an invasive experiment. And, you know, we can kind of go into that and explain a little bit about, you know, how that's particularly invasive and how it's quite difficult to measure. But that's really been the main limitation of actually being able to establish who is insulin sensitive and who is insulin resistant. It's because it's very difficult to measure. But what this, what this paper does is it actually shows that insulin resistance can be measured, albeit indirectly. It can be measured and established in clinic. And we know that the values in which we're getting do relate to diabetes complications and that they still relate to diabetes complications, even when you take glucose control out of the picture, which means we should be focusing on insulin resistance in clinic, not just focusing on glucose control. So two questions that lead on from there. EGDR, can you explain the, what, the, what that's made up of? So EGDR, it stands for Estimated Glucose Disposal Rate. So if we actually break, you know, that kind of, you know, that kind of links of uh, link of words down together, we are trying to estimate the rate at which glucose is being disposed of. So we're trying to estimate the rate at which glucose is being removed from the body. And if we remember back to insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity, insulin resistance occurs when the body becomes less effective at being able to remove glucose from the circulation. So we can actually use this particular metric to give us a fairly good indicator of whether you're insulin sensitive or insulin resistance based on an estimated rate of glucose disposal. It can be calculated a number of different ways. So there's a range of different calculations which you can use. And there's there's actually, although not a huge amount of literature surrounding that, a lot of it has actually been led by our group. Um, but there's now a good... Um, a good number of papers using a range of different calculations to be able to calculate insulin resistance. And it takes into things into consideration, which we know are important for insulin resistance. So in our case, we used something as simple as BMI, which can be calculated using your height and weight, hypertension status. So whether you have high blood, um, uh, a blood pressure level and whether you're being treated for blood pressure and um, it can also be, you can also use things like um, cholesterol levels or uh, other kind of biomarkers, uh, such as inflammatory biomarkers. But the main blood marker which we used was simply HbA1c. So the metric which everyone will be familiar with, the metric which your doctor usually talks to you about, you know, tries to get that within a, a, cert, a certain level. So by simply using BMI, HbA1c and blood pressure status, we can estimate glucose disposal rate. And that gives us uh, an indicator of insulin resistance or insulin sensitivity. And how new is that in the world of diabetes? Because you you say that you and your team at at Leeds have developed this as a proxy measure of insulin resistance. To me, it's something that I'd never heard of before. So, um, So yeah, the question sort of stands, which is how new is it? 
Well, it's a really good question, and actually, it's quite difficult to answer. Uh, or I guess it's got—I guess it's got two different answers in terms of how new it is. It's actually not that new. It's been around for a little while. Um, the earliest kind of validation studies, so trying to determine whether it was a reliable marker against gold standard techniques, they were done back in the kind of two thousands. So you know, two thousand five, two thousand six. Um, but in terms of you know, has that actually broken through into routine clinical practice? It's brand new. You know, no one's really talking about it. A lot of clinicians are aware of it, but they don't necessarily um, they don't necessarily understand the utility of it, um, and they don't necessarily see see the relevance of talking about it within within routine clinical practice. And certainly within within the UK, in terms of clinical frameworks, it it certainly hasn't been adopted. You know, so one of the big things that we've seen is that generally, you know, people with type one diabetes, if we just focus on people with type one for now, they tend to be kind of managed as a bit of a homogenous group, you know? So we just focus on glucose, we just focus on insulin. We might kind of look at blood pressure levels and we might look at kind of adjunct medication as well in some individuals as, as, as well. But actually, you know, you will know, and everyone with type one will know that their, you know, their own condition is completely different to everybody else's. You know, what they struggle with is different. What they find manageable is different to everybody else. So it's really unsatisfactory. It's really inappropriate that we treat everybody as this kind of big one homogenous block. And I think the route to being able to tease out, you know, who is not only who is different, but but why are they different, and you know, or or, or why is their diabetes different, and and how should that be managed differently? The root of that is actually insulin resistance. Yeah, I mean, you make a valid point there, which is ordinarily when you have a, a an appointment, your the first question is, or the first topic of discussion is your HbA one C, and so it is completely glucose centric. It is what is your control like? So. I think that's changing over time and that will move further towards maybe timing range, which is really interesting. The more um, we're able to get access to the insulin pumps and the information that that's giving. But again, as we kind of spoke about last week, this is all very glucose carb driven, which is this is the, this is the result of what's happening to, to, to you today and okay. happened over the last three months. It's okay. not the cause it's it's yeah. sort of symptoms based rather than cause based and what you're well, saying and what this research is actually telling us is that we need to spend much more time looking at insulin resistance than, and insulin sensitivity than we do looking at blood glucose control although that is just as important and interestingly if i'm right in saying it insulin resistance helps with blood glucose control yeah well i was actually just going to pick up on that point which we, which you we were talking about uh, time and range Kind of park that for one second and, and just focus on your main question, which was blood glucose control. Again, if you kind of remember back to when I was talking about what insulin resistance is and what the actions of insulin are, you know, insulin has two main two main rules. It extracts, it pulls out glucose from the blood, and it also suppresses tissues from kicking out stored glucose back into the circulation. So it has a net effect of lowering blood glucose levels. If you have a high degree of insulin resistance, inevitably your blood glucose levels will be higher. They can either be higher at meal times because your tissues, tissues within, within your body are less effective at extracting glucose from the circulation after you've just had a big meal or in between meals or during the night, you can also have high blood glucose levels, 
because your basal insulin dose might not actually be sufficient to cover or it might not necessarily be sufficient to actually suppress um, tissues which want to kick glucose back out into the circulation. And obviously, because we know high blood glucose levels do relate to complications, they are really important. Inevitably, you know, those two factors aren't linked. But if we talk about what's actually increasing blood glucose levels within that context, it's insulin resistance. But insulin resistance also increases other things as well. Primarily, it increases an, an overall kind of inflammatory state. You know, if you think about when you're run down, when you're not feeling too well, you're largely in an inflamed state. And I mean, diabetes is largely an inflammatory condition. If you actually think about the process of how diabetes develops, that, that kind of autoimmune process, which attacks the insulin producing cells in the pancreas, that is an inflammatory process. And even once that process is, is finished, there's still an increased level of inflammation within the body. If you then superimpose insulin resistance on top of that, you're simply adding to underlying inflammation. And if you look at the root cause of a lot of these diabetes complications, which we've talked about, it's, it's actually insulin resistance driven inflammation and also elevated blood glucose levels, which drive that complication process. So the two are, are, are absolutely coupled. The second point which I'll make is what you were talking about around it being kind of glucocentric in, in clinic and how, I mean, I always used to say that clinicians used to hit their patients over the head with HbA1c because, you know, that's, that's what used to get kind of shoved down people's throats. And it is really important, you know, because we know it's strongly related to the risk of complications. And obviously, you know, the clinicians want to try and avoid that as well as everyone with, with diabetes. And as new CGM technology comes online and insulin pumps, I think one of the biggest frustrations that a lot of people with certainly type one had was, well, you know, I don't control my, my diabetes on a day by day basis through HbA1c. You know, it's some kind of abstract number, which I look at every three months. And then if it's gone up or down, sometimes I don't really know why, mm. well, how I actually manage my diabetes on a day by day basis is by looking at, looking at the numbers, you know, over a much shorter time, time frame. And that's what, that's what CGM enables you to do. And one of the big, uh, kind of new metrics coming out now is time and range. Now, it's not necessarily the focus of this discussion today, but one of the papers which we're just about to publish, um, and obviously you have to keep this as confidential as, as possible, but um, one of the papers which we're just about to publish is actually focused on time and range. And we show that time and range is really important for complications, but actually it's only important when you have underlying insulin resistance. So when you're outside of time and range, obviously, you know, there's lots of, lots of symptoms and uh, acute complications like hypoglycemia or acute hypoglycemia, which you have to manage. But in terms of risk of developing complications, that kind of glucose variability, that, that yo-yo that you have, that only really becomes very clinically important when you have underlying insulin resistance, which again would support what I've been saying previously around Look at the look at the drivers of complications, not just the symptoms. Which so it's not just blood sugar levels per se; they are really important. But it's insulin resistance which is actually driving that process. So, so this paper was was really to to bring to the forefront the fact that not to stop looking at blood glucose variability, not to stop looking at your blood sugars on a on an hourly, daily sort of minute by minute basis, but what it was to say is, look, you've got to look at the cause of this. 
and start to to um, to take that into account, especially if you are if you are are potentially overweight, and um, and especially if your your variability at the moment is out of control, especially for type ones, obviously. That's right. I mean, you know, Andrew, I mean, I'm sure you'll be able to kind of put your penny in in terms of this, but I think certainly within within the medical community uh, and certainly within the general population, the kind of non-diabetes population, there was a bit of a misconception that most people, if not all people with type 1, were typically either underweight or normal weight. And that tended to be a bit of a picture, you know, very early on, if you go back kind of 50, 60 years ago. If you look at that now, I mean, one of the things which this paper actually showed was that more than half of the individuals with type 1 that we assessed were actually classified as overweight or obese using BMI. And that's more than the general public. So, you know, we know that weight control is really, really, uh, is a, uh, a really important and prevalent issue within type 1 diabetes. I'm not sure, I mean, how, how, how do you view it? Because, you know, obviously you're in, you're in good shape, but I know that weight control is a really important issue for a lot of people with type one and a lot of people really struggle with controlling the weight and, and also have kind of body image issues as well. I think in my experience, what, what I found is that, that the number one problem is controlling your blood sugars on a day-by-day basis. And potentially that means that, that secondary um, sort of effects of that, which potentially is your weight, can take a bit of a back step as such. And you just kind of, you really want to try and get on top of that. But invariably what happens over time, and I've spoken to plenty of people that this has happened to and, and myself as well, as you start to put on more weight, that variability and that that kind of inconsistency in your blood sugars only gets worse. So it's almost like the, the towel wagging the dog as such, if you see what I mean. Do I think more and more people are becoming overweight i think that's prevalent in in people without diabetes as well that's everything that we're seeing in in modern lifestyle but there's and that's because we live in a world of convenience we live in a world where food is is instantly available on your on your mobile phone to get delivered to to your house and when you're diabetic and let's say you've had a bad day you've had a your bloods have been playing up you've had a bad day you and you just cannot muster the energy to put together what could can be considered a healthier option um you know some whole foods some plant-based foods for instance that 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 i eat it takes time and effort to put that to to do those kind of things sometimes it's just easier to order in and what what comes off the back of that is doesn't really matter what you eat um when you get a takeaway it is generally processed food and when that when you eat more processed food not only do your bloods uh, are your bloods more difficult to control, but the side effect of that is that you, you're also more more likely to just gain weight. That's obviously you know exactly what we showed in the first paper. The thing which I was going to say was that it's it's actually particularly important within type one because you're absolutely right. The general population generally you know we are we are getting more overweight we are getting um more sedentary you know we don't kind of move around we don't exercise even if we exercise we what's really interesting we have what we kind of what what we term within the medical community as kind of weekend warriors you know so people who are quite happy going out and doing a park run on a saturday but actually they lead very sedentary lives so you know they will kind of sofa surf for a long period of time you know or have very sedentary jobs so they might be stuck behind a desk all day, go home, or if they're working from home, 
you know, either straight in the fridge or straight under the sofa, even if you exercise a couple of times a week, that's probably not sufficient to actually counteract the overall level of sedentariness. So we see this within the general population, but then superimposed on top of that, we've also got the complexities of managing type 1 diabetes and managing blood sugar levels. And, and for a long time, you know, people with type 1 have been told that, you know, you must try to intensively manage your diabetes. And that means checking your blood sugar levels regularly and also making correction doses. And though I would never advocate not doing that um, because it is incredibly important, when you intensively manage your diabetes, that does carry with, with it a risk of, of, of putting on more weight. And if, if you think about why, it's because insulin, it's a really potent anabolic hormone. The more insulin you take, all insulin wants to do is to be able to remove that, that, that glucose from the circulation and either use it or store it. So um, I, I think people with type 1 have a, have a very, you know, a very difficult time in terms of managing a lot of the, a lot, a lot, a lot of the pressures of kind of modern day life in terms of sedentariness, being less active, uh, food availability, built environment issues, and then also managing blood sugar levels alongside that and trying to keep them in check at the same time and that's why you know nutrition and exercise is particularly important in people with type 1 diabetes so you just said something that was really interesting because i was thinking that this was a high bmi and being potentially overweight will cause insulin resistance but actually insulin resistance also causes being overweight because you're taking more insulin so from what you were just saying the more insulin you're taking, the more your body wants to hold on to that weight. Absolutely, yeah. So it, it really is a bit of a vicious circle. Yeah. I mean, we've got some people will be, you know, more naturally predisposed to putting on weight. You know, I mean, you know, we all know that, you know, there'll be a, for example, some people just don't seem to put on weight. Other people tend to put it on really easily. Some people can lose weight really easily, and some people really struggle to shift it. So there are, you know, there are big differences between different people. And, uh, and actually what a lot of the literature, what a lot of the, the research and the science has, has shown uh, recently is that what we tend to have is a kind of personal fat threshold. So rather than just looking at an absolute number, you know, if once you get to this weight, you're at risk, or once you're at that rate, then you're no longer at risk. That's not necessarily the case. What we tend to have is this kind of personal fat threshold whereby you can put on a certain amount of weight. You might actually be classified as being overweight, but you might still actually be healthy in terms of your risk of complications or kind of conversely to that you might you might look relatively slim you might look uh, you know you might be at what, what would be deemed a kind of healthy weight but you've actually exceeded your personal fat threshold and that's to do with how and where fat is stored in the body and the kind of downstream effects of, of that on insulin resistance as well so it's absolutely coupled to overweight and you know general storage of fat but there's huge differences between different people. So, you know, people can look very differently. Um, and someone who might kind of look healthy might not necessarily be healthy and also vice, vice versa. So the final point that I had on this paper in particular was that complications were associated with insulin resistance, but that was independent of HbA1c. One of the things I've always said to people is, have you seen what people without diabetes, what their, their CGM graph is like and what their blood sugars do on a daily basis? Because no, no one's does that. And equally, people that are, that are not diabetic are going below 3.9. They're going above 10, 10. And so 
so the question I had for you was, should we be afraid of, of variability? Or sorry, actually, the better question would be, when should we be afraid of the variability? Yeah, very good question. So what I often show people, you know, whether I'm kind of teaching students or talking to people with type one uh, or even clinicians, is that I, I, I've, I've worn a lot of continuous glucose monitors in my time. So I've got a fairly good idea in terms of, you know, how my, what my glucose responses are, um, either at rest or in response to exercise or in response to certain types of meals. I don't have type one diabetes, you know, so I think, I think the normal kind of response would be, well, you just expect a flat line, you know, it wouldn't really go up. And that's not the case at all. You know, mine fluctuates throughout the day. It actually tends to be slightly low. So especially when I exercise, I, I can actually exercise in what we've classed as kind of uh, a solid hypo range. And I wouldn't necessarily detect that. So that's, that's the first thing, you know, is that you see a huge amount of variability between different people. You also see a huge amount of variability within the same person. So what I do on a Monday or a Tuesday, my glucose responses might be totally different on a Thursday or a Friday. Even if I do exactly the same types of activity or I eat exactly the same types of foods. So that's, that's the second thing about variability. Don't be afraid of variability in that sense, because even for someone without type 1 diabetes, I have it as well. Um, it is perfectly normal. It's perfectly natural. And I can understand how frustrating it must be when you think, well, I'm going to eat this particular food because I know this is what will happen to my blood sugars. And then sometimes it just doesn't. In terms of when that, be in terms of when that becomes particularly important, you've really got to take into consideration other factors which interact with glucose variability. A high and a low glucose level is important for two reasons, really. One, in the short term, so you know whether you're at risk of having a hypo um, or whether you've got a really high blood glucose levels, and you might, you know, you might have high levels of ketones. And then also over the long term, because we know that this might increase the risk of complications. In terms of the science, the jury is kind of out or at least it will be until our new paper is published, in terms of you know, whether glycemic variability is really important in terms of the risk of complications. We know it is in the short term in terms of avoiding hypos and you know, avoiding really high blood sugar, blood sugar levels, which you know, bring with it very nasty symptoms. But in terms of whether it actually directly increases your risk of complications, there's, there's kind of mixed evidence there. Some studies say that it does, some studies say that it doesn't, and there's different kind of methods being applied in, in each of those studies, which make it very difficult to draw an overall consensus. What we've been able to show very recently is that glucose variability, that kind of yo-yoing over a long period of time, it becomes really important when you have underlying insulin resistance. And if you think about what, how we measured in underlying insulin resistance in our study, it was through BMI. So if you have a, if you have a, a healthy normal weight, HbA1c. So actually, if you're in relatively good glucose control, um, certainly in terms of long-term glucose control, and also blood pressure. So if you have blood pressure within a normal range, or you're being uh, adequately treated for blood pressure, then actually glucose variability probably isn't as important as what it would be if you were overweight, had a poor HbA1c and were really hypertensive or you know, had a, a high blood pressure level. Am I right in saying that, and the reason you're looking at that sort of macrovascular issues is because not only is 
about um, heart attacks, the biggest killer of people that aren't diabetic. But when you're diabetic, you're, am I right in saying two and a half times more likely to have a heart attack? On average, I mean, I, th- I think that's kind of, that's probably based on historical data. Um, I, obviously, when you're looking at, when you're looking at research dealing with complications, it takes a certain amount of time for those complications to develop. Um, and, you know, so it takes a, a certain amount of time for that to actually, you know, for, for scientists to actually be able to capture that type of information. And what that means is that it doesn't necessarily mean that that information is no longer relevant. But what it actually means is that the, the, the people from who that data were collected, they're probably not the same type of patient that we see these days, i.e., um, you know, they might be treated on a different insulin regimen. They might be exposed to different environmental things, different food habits, different lifestyle preferences. So all of these different factors that naturally change over time, it might, you know, you might be working with two kind of different populations there. So it's it's quite difficult to draw direct kind of inference between the two. On average, that's what it is. I mean, a lot of the data has historically focused on HB1C. We know that the higher your HB1C, the increased risk it is. So, you know, if, if your HB1C is up towards kind of 10, 11, 12, it's more like kind of five or six times higher rather than the two and a half. I really, if you're, getting, if you're getting it down towards kind of the six, seven mark, then although there's still an increased risk, it's much, much lower. It's much lower than two and a half times. Okay. And again, if you think of the reasons why that, it's, it's because type one is a largely, it is an inflammatory condition and that's what it, you know drives these complications. It's really scary for us to, to sort of hear the, the I can imagine. stats. They, they're, they're not particularly nice to listen to, but I think that's why it's so important for us to understand that this research is going on and that these are the things that we can do about it. So would you mind just giving us a, an, an overview of the conclusions the paper drew? Yep, absolutely. So I guess the first point, which I would just say is, obviously talking about complications is very scary for a lot of people, but actually what we've been able to show through the paper is that if you if you do the right things, then actually they don't necessarily have to be. You know, it's not a kind of an inevitability. Um, you can prevent complications by doing the right things, and you know, possibly in in the third paper in the next article, we can we can kind of elaborate on what those things might actually be. So, as a kind of uh, a top down of the paper, we showed that a large proportion of people with type one are classified as overweight or obese, more than the general population. It was taken from a really large sample, so over 2,000 people with type 1, fairly representative of, you know, kind of typical um, demographic that you would see across, across the country within the UK. Um, although a higher BMI, so although increased weight was associated with an increase in um, diabetes complications, it was actually our insulin resistance marker that shows, that appeared to show an even stronger association with diabetes complications, both microvascular, small blood vessel, and macrovascular, uh, big blood vessel uh, disease. The complications were associ- that were associated with insulin resistance, they occurred independent of HbA1c, and that's really, really important. So although the highest complication rate was seen in those with um, the greatest degree of insulin resistance and with the highest HbA1c, which is what we'd expect. If you took HbA1c out of the equation, you controlled for that, insulin resistance is still really, really important. So if you're in good glucose control, but insulin resistant, then you're still at an increased risk of developing complications. 
the the third main point was that our actual marker or measure of insulin resistance, estimated glucose disposal rate, we were, we were able to show that it is a really strong relator of complications and that this particular marker, it can be routinely calculated in clinical practice. So there isn't really any excuse for not doing that. We know it's important, we know it can be done, so it should be being communicated about. In terms of why we, why we kind of saw what we saw, and this is very much kind of hypothesis generating at this stage. So insulin resistance in type 1, as we alluded to, it usually occurs because of two reasons. The first one is general lifestyle, which is what we see in the general population. People more sedentary, eating less healthy foods, you know, more processed foods, and also changes within the built environment. And also because of intensification of insulin therapy in order to manage glucose concentrations. So people at type 1 have an increased risk of developing insulin resistance above and beyond the general public. You can't really do much about the second one. You know, you wouldn't really want to start fiddling around with your insulin levels, um, you know, because you, you, you want to try to intensively manage your diabetes, but you can certainly do something about the lifestyle element. And again, we can talk about that next week. Um, in terms of some study limitations, so the first thing to mention is that this is our research project was what was called a kind of cross-sectional study design. So it took a cross-section of a population. And really, this can only really establish associations between different markers. It doesn't really demonstrate a causal relationship. So you have to take this, this paper within context and also in context with, with other research findings, which might support some of the hypotheses which we are actually um, which we are actually purporting that might actually explain some of these results. And also some of the some some information which you might think are particularly relevant, such as lifestyle behaviors, smoking behaviors, that, that information we just don't collect that as part of, or we, it certainly wasn't collected within the whole cohort as kind of routine practice. So you can't rule out the the, the fact that some of those lifestyle factors might also play quite a big role. And then lastly, um, limited ethnicity within the group. So it was predominantly a white population. We know people with, in, in particularly Black Caribbean and also South Asian descent, they tend to have an increased risk of developing insulin resistance and also an increased risk of developing diabetes complications. But, you know, because of the, the population that we sampled, we didn't really have a very good representative sample of, of those particular ethnicities. So again, does, do, do these results apply to those particular groups? Probably, but again, we can't really say with a, a huge degree of uh, certainty. So if there was one takeaway, one sort of golden nugget from this piece of research. So weight and more importantly, insulin resistance are key drivers of diabetes complications for people with type 1 diabetes with the key underlying cause being insulin resistance. It's not just weight, it's insulin resistance. So if you want to prevent or change your chances of long-term diabetes complications, then you, you need to not only look at, and this is what I drew from it, you not, need to not only look at your variability in blood glucose, you must be aware of your insulin resistance and your insulin sensitivity and where you kind of sit as such. And these are perhaps questions we should be asking in clinic that, that have never been asked before. Absolutely. Maybe yeah, so, you know, this is us talking about this and then people actually starting to contribute and ask these questions and saying, okay, well, if I can look at this, why aren't why, why why am I not doing so at the moment? 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this, this certainly isn't a replacement for kind of blood glucose management, whether it be HbA1c, time and range, glucose variability, all of those things are really important. But if we look at what drives those things, it's insulin resistance. So, so if you had a, why are we talking about glucose and not insulin resistance? Okay. That makes sense. Matt, do you want to speak about the, the third one that we're doing next week? Absolutely. So Again, if we kind of rewind to the very first week and then build up a bit of a, hopefully, uh, a kind of coherent picture. So in the first paper, we demonstrated that uh, it's not just um, it's not just the composition of the food, but it's actually how the foods are actually put together. So it's not just the kind of nutritional composition of the foods, it's, it's, it's how they're processed. We showed that um, processed foods, they drive weight gain and they also drive other biochemical abnormalities, so such as uh, insulin resistance and glucose intolerance, so they can affect glucose levels. This week, we've demonstrated that weight gain and insulin resistance are both prevalent in type 1 diabetes, and they're really important for complications, in particular, insulin resistance. But it was based on a cross-sectional survey uh, or a cross-sectional data collection. Next week's paper is actually going to look at you know, how insulin resistance drives complications. We've shown in this episode that there's a relationship between the two, but that it's influenced by a number of different factors. In the next paper, we're actually going to look at some of the, some of the key driving factors, you know, so what are the, what are the under, underpinning kind of mechanics of this? You know, so again, kind of supporting this rooted in science and theory, not simply just showing correlations and associations. I'm looking forward to it. Sounds great. If you're watching this or you're listening to this and and you like what you've heard or you like what you've seen, can you do us a favor? Can you like, can you comment and subscribe um, so that you don't miss another episode? So you're informed every time we post one of these Um, and we will be posting a a good number. Obviously, this is a three part trilogy all about insulin, insulin sensitivity and the final part's coming out relatively soon. So if you want to leave a comment or you want to appear on here, we're going to do the first three, just myself and Matt, and then we're going to be inviting some guests on and we'll catch you soon. Thanks, Matt. Thanks everyone. Thanks, Andrew.